Tape 4. Albatross. Okay, an account of the alleged last known writings of Gareth Bancroft, mainly on the actions of his colleague Peter Wicks, originally written on December the 17th of 1985. After the inquiries I made in Lawrence, I have come to a realisation, and that is that I am an idiot. I've been going about my research incorrectly, and it took Lawrence, that rather damned beautiful town, to show that to me. What I mean is this. Up until Lawrence, I had been conducting my research using both locality and time as my parameters. I would find a point of note, I would scan the news from that area in recent times, and then I would widen my search area to nearby locations. But looking at the thing encountered by Teresa Wyatt, well, those sightings, they date back decades. Christ, it's obvious I shouldn't have been filtering by time whatsoever. These things don't just pop up and then go away, having never been there before and never to return. I don't see why I shouldn't believe these occurrences can repeat and repeat again in different formats in the same area. I can't filter and divide my scavenging by time. I need to widen my scope, but narrow it down for area. Naturally, armed with this little revelation of mine, I turned with a little more hope back to the Rodriguez case. I didn't just rip through newspapers this time, I broadened things. Archives, museums, libraries, anything I could access online or pester somebody into giving me, all of that was included. I found nothing whatsoever on Rodriguez, frustratingly, but I don't know, I had a, a feeling, a hunch that I was doing something correctly. I widened my scope further, encompassing a few more towns along the coast, and I, well, I found it. This finding comes from a small historical archive in the coastal town of Lübeck, Maine. Turns out that Lübeck, a beautiful little picturesque town, had a rather strange story in 1985. Now, it wasn't in Lübeck, but Lübeck is the closest civilized area to an odd missing persons case that truly captured my attention. The following account claims to be that of Gareth Bancroft, a lighthouse keeper, aged 41 at the time of the events, who went missing alongside his colleague Peter Wicks, while both were live-in lighthouse keepers at Olwyn Point Lighthouse. Both went missing, and the following account was left at the lighthouse, later discovered by police. Once it had been declassified, it was absorbed into the archive of Lubeck's resident historical society, who kindly lent me a digital copy which I am assured is a word-for-word -word reprint. Reading begins. I'm quite scared, you know. It's been an unusual number of weeks, and it would be unreasonable of me not to expect something quite nasty to happen to me in the very immediate future. I'll hide this when I'm done, in the event that I don't get back here. He shouldn't find it. I know every nook and cranny of this damned place, and he doesn't, though most of those places are quite hateful to me. My name is Gareth Bancroft. 
I was born in 1944, Amherst, New York, and I'm not entirely sure that this matters very much. I've worked here at Owen Point since September of 1985, and today's date is in the early hours of the 17th of December, same year. My colleague here, Peter Wicks, is dead. I know this, and I know it to be a mercy to him. I ended up working here by accident, I think. My father was an electrician and taught me much of his craft in sputters throughout my teen years, so after school I took an apprenticeship and for whatever reason, whatever damnable trick of fate, I happened to fall into the maintenance and repair of large bulbs. Lighthousekeeping. I've worked a few lighthouses all along the northeast coast, but as I said, I'm relatively new here. The lighthouse located on a small outcropping of rock at Owen Point, needed supervision by a live-in from September to March every year due to storms and generally nasty conditions. With the improvements coming in, I share an opinion with a few colleagues. They won't need us in ten years. A lighthouse that maintains itself is apparently on the cards. By all rights, it should have been just me, all alone from September to March. Pete, the keeper I was meant to be replacing, was due to retire in this year, leaving the duty to me. But we met up, we had a few drinks, and we got on well, and well, he offered to stay for a few months. Let me get the hang of things without the loneliness getting to me. Plus, he said that if he was at home twiddling his thumbs, he would spend the first months fretting that I would be forgetting something or other, so it was better for both of us this way. I most certainly should have said no. I should have told him he could relax, that I'd handle it, that I didn't want him around, just anything to keep him away. But I didn't know. God, how could I have known? I feel certain that this wouldn't have happened without the uh, isolation, I suppose, out there. I, I can't find the word. It'll come to me. Anyway, I accepted the offer. Stupid, yes, but that's the fact of it. I mean, truth be told, it was a relief, I think. I'd never stayed more than a few weeks on a lighthouse alone, and I was a little worried. That godforsaken rock that held the lighthouse was a miserable little epitome of being alone. There was a comms radio I was warned was spotty, a television set that Pete informed me would, if I was lucky, function for a week in June, and well, several birds for company. I'd coped just fine being alone for a few weeks before with a few good bucks in my own company, but... You hear stories about what it is that isolation does to the mind, so I thought I'd stave off the boredom and the loneliness with a co-worker for a little while. I mean, he was offering. He wanted to be there. In retrospect, I should have known that was odd. I have no idea whether he knew what was happening, but no use now, is it? For the first little while, I thought that I'd made a good choice. Pete and myself got on quite well, actually, and I learned a great deal both about the lighthouse work and about him. He was born in 1915, near London, I found out, though he had an energy and a mobility so lively you would have put him 15 years younger. He served in the Second World War doing work not unlike this, crossed over to the States afterwards. I never asked why. He said he had very little left in England, and I got the impression it was a topic he preferred the avoiding of. Didn't bother me any, and he was a fantastic storyteller. The work was monotonous, and maintaining the lighthouse quickly became a routine for us. It was cold and wet and dark all the time, but it wasn't bad. I was glad for the company, and I got the impression that Pete shared that. He'd been doing this every winter for decades, and I can't imagine it's thrilling work alone. 
The daily routine was simple. We'd clean and service the light when it was necessary, cater and cook for ourselves, uh, keep our accommodation clean, and well, take care of whatever else needed it. Our accommodation consisted of two small rooms, a kitchen of sorts, and a bedroom with a fireplace, two beds, and a few chairs. I also took to writing at the time. I told Pete I was just keeping a journal, and I did. But also, as time went on, I found myself thinking further back. I'm sure if you're reading this, you found the other journal, which will admittedly probably make you think I'm crazy before I even get into this. I assure you that I'm not. I have just seen some things. Anyway. It was about two weeks in that I began to notice Pete's behavior. There were times, only once or twice a week at the beginning, where his demeanor would shift. Generally, he was, like I said, quite energetic. Whatever work he was doing, he would be moving somehow. Tapping his foot and humming, rambling through a story for my benefit, or just muttering to himself about the work he was doing, his face animated and completely alive with whatever irritation or joy he felt with the success or failure of his work. But there were times when, watching the skyline from the lighthouse tower, he would go still. I didn't pick up on it at first, really. It just didn't strike me as odd. The work afforded plenty of time to think and ponder life, so I probably spent a lot of time bearing into space on my own part. But this felt so distinctly strange. He was so still, unmoving. He was breathing, but so slowly and deeply that you wouldn't know it. His eyes would be glazed over, but once I called his name, he'd snap back and smile, apologizing for being, in his own words, away with the fairies. I didn't question it. I mean, Pete had worked for more than 20 straight years, spending half the year sitting alone on a rock in the ocean. If the only damage that wrought to him was sitting and staring into the middle distance once in a while, then that wasn't a big deal. Around the middle of October, I got up. It was morning. I was a few minutes later than usual, and Pete was already out of bed. I got up and made my breakfast normal routine. After nearly half an hour, I realized I still hadn't seen or heard from Pete. I presumed what he was doing, obviously, but this was far longer than he'd ever spaced like that, so I decided I would just check in. He was there, of course, up on the lighthouse tower, leaning against the guardrail, face blank, body still, staring upwards into the grey nothingness of the North Atlantic sky. I looked up where he was staring. There was an albatross, I think? It was a calm day, no wind, so it... I don't know how it was hovering in place, wings outstretched like on a strong updraft. It just beats me. He was transfixed, though. I went to call out to him, but something stopped me. It took me a second to pin it down, but something was different. I could feel it. Like the other time, though I didn't connect it at the time. There was this subtle wrongness that I could feel in my bones. I placed it soon enough. He wasn't completely still. You'd think that would be a relief, wouldn't you? That he wasn't as stock still and paralyzed as before. That there was life there, but here's a fact for you. Life and movement are not always mutually inclusive. I knew that before, and I saw it again here, just like the first time. There was movement, and there was something horribly wrong. His head was swaying. Left, right, left right. Slowly. Deliberately. I stood, almost hypnotized for what felt like hours. 
the world, my perception, everything I could see started to sway with him. I tried to look at what he was seeing up there and there it was. I've never had much in the way of sea legs and suddenly I found myself gagging, shattering whatever it was. Pete whipped his head around at the noise and I swear to you on everything that I am, whatever the hell was looking at me through Pete's eyes, it wasn't him. There was just emptiness, just nothing at all. Something sparked and well, Pete was back. He smiled, apologized cheerily for wool gathering and headed inside like it was all normal. I did the only thing I could, really. I got back to work. The light had blinked once or twice the day before, so there was maintenance to be done, and, well, I didn't know what to do or whether I should be doing anything at all. Yes, I had a bad feeling, but other than that, there was no issue. Those little episodes weren't hurting Pete, they weren't endangering me, and they weren't impeding his work. Plus, I didn't really want to call in for relief out of what was, for all I knew, a slightly odd colleague and a bad feeling. They can dock your pay pretty bad for calling in a relief without a valid reason, and I was pretty sure this didn't count as a genuine medical emergency or a mechanical fault we needed help for, so I just thought, I'll stick it out for a while. It wasn't so bad for the next while. I caught him staring off a few more times, but either he wasn't doing that strange swaying, or I wasn't letting myself look too long because I didn't see it for a while. Life continued for about a week and a half. It was at that point that Pete started sleepwalking. The first time I saw it probably was not at all the first time it happened. It was a pretty nasty night, I remember. Not much rain, but there was this gale-force wind shaking us around, so the spray from the waves was the equivalent of any downpour I've had. I woke up with a start around 3am. I think I'd been having a nightmare. I can't remember. I was scared, though. It didn't help that when I looked over in the dim moonlight streaming through the window, I realised that Pete's bed was empty. I assumed there had just been an issue that he needed to tend to without me, but... Looking out the window and squinting through the spray, I could see the light was still blaring out into the dark. I got this awful sinking feeling in my chest. I threw on my boots and a heavy coat and pushed out. God, the wind nearly took me off my feet, but I needed to find Pete. If he was out there, and there was nowhere else he could be, he needed to get inside. Like I said before, he was healthy and spry, but at that age, hearty as you might be, one bad fall in the dark could do a lot of damage. So, yes, I had to look for him. I cupped my hands around my mouth and started shouting his name. But it was clear that the wind was snatching the words out of my damn mouth, and there wasn't a chance he would hear me if he wasn't a few feet away from me. I was starting to feel a more immediate fear now. That creeping dread I'd been putting down for a week or so was drowned out by the very real fear that my friend was dead or injured. I wandered back and forth like that with a torch screaming Pete's name for nearly an hour. The island isn't even an acre in terms of size, so I was beginning to think Pete had just been swept out. Didn't want to accept that, but it was what seemed likely. Then, all of a sudden, I saw him. I don't really know how I'd missed him. He was leaning backwards, stock still as ever, over the ledge of the island, staring into the sky. Below him was a two meter drop into the ocean. The angle was so extreme it didn't seem plausible he wasn't falling. 
He was drenched to the skin, wasn't wearing a coat or boot. He was barefoot in jeans and a shirt. There was a bird there, just like before. For some reason, that was what snapped me out of it. It was just insane that any bird would be there. Another albatross, hovering serenely on winds that, to me, looked far calmer than the squall around me felt. I ran across to Pete. I quelled the rising panic and I grabbed him. He straightened, placing his hand on my shoulder, and I took a stumbling step back, feeling this inexplicable and terrible dizziness, and again in Pete's eyes I saw it. Emptiness. It wasn't Pete in there at those moments. I know that, and I think I knew it then. It lasted a second, and then I saw his face. Pete's face, that is, cloud with confusion. He was as scared and confused as you might expect, so I took him back inside, and he dried off and warmed up, and I got him into bed, but I don't think either of us slept that night. The next morning, I obviously asked him about it all. He was, unfortunately, as confused as I was. Said he remembered being in bed, starting to drift off, then he blinked and he was outside and I was holding his arm. Didn't know why he was out there, didn't know what he'd been doing, or even how long. We had a long talk about what we should do. He brushed off my concerns about his whole staring into space thing, but he obviously couldn't reassure me that the previous night had been anything near normal. We ended up contacting the mainland by the radio, the connection was horrendously fuzzy and we were barely able to hear each other, but we got our main points across. Pete was experiencing some concerning mental issues and I was worried for his safety. We were told, quite bluntly, that with the weather conditions being what they were, a relief team could not in good faith be sent for upwards of two months. The channel from the mainland to Owen Point was notoriously treacherous and we'd all seen it flip from calm to storm in what felt like seconds. A few nasty storms were predicted in the coming weeks at points spread out enough to worry us all. They asked quite clearly whether they needed to arrange emergency services to extract myself and Pete from the island. If we requested that, then the matter would be passed on to search and rescue, who would likely be able to take greater risks and collect us sooner. We really, really should have said yes. But it's true what they say about the cold light of day, isn't it? I'd convinced myself I'd imagined the other thing in Pete, and in fairness, he remembered none of the events himself. So, yeah, we said no. We would eagerly await the relief team in late January, and we would try to keep it together until then. Pete and I set about making the arrangements to reduce the risk of something similar happening again. We'd lock the door to the room we slept in with the key under my pillow. If Pete, sleepwalking, wanted to leave, he would find the door locked. He wouldn't be able to wander outside in his sleep. I would stay close to Pete as much as I could, talking to keep his attention off the horizon and shaking him back to the land of the living should I see his eyes glaze over. It was all we could do, I think. Christ, but we shouldn't have been there at all by then. It was a series of bad luck and worse decisions, but we were there. That's that. Can't change it. It seemed to work at first. Pete wasn't spacing out too often, and the one time I caught him sleepwalking, he was easily roused and returned to bed. I began, however, to feel this strange sensation. There was fear, obviously, and a healthy dose of dread to go with it, but there was most certainly something else. It was like a desolation. That's the word I was trying to get. Desolation. This feeling of 
destroyed emptiness, this curious loneliness that went far beyond the ordinary isolation we were used to working in. I felt it, and I think Pete did too. Owen Point was all there was. He and I were the only people there were. This godforsaken rock was perched precariously at the end of the goddamn world, just short of tumbling into somewhere else entirely. In retrospect, we may have been better off fearing what was going to come tumbling in from out there. It didn't help that it wasn't even a week before we lost comms. I think I'd expected it somehow, but it was just a confirmation of my fears when the radio filled with a hateful crackling. We'd had a few storms, consistently nasty weather, and it was likely that some mast or some receiver on the other end got damaged. Pete assured me this was normal, which did nothing to make me less worried. Things were beginning to deteriorate for Pete, faster than before. The spacing out and the attempts to sleepwalk became more numerous and more difficult for me to bring an end to, and he started experiencing what I think was vertigo. I would find him staring upwards, tottering like a drunk. It would take him nearly an hour to regain his balance. Once I made the mistake of craning my head upwards to see what he was looking for, the dizziness hit me like a train, so I stopped that pretty quick. I was aware now that something like what I'd known before was coming. I could feel it all closing in, but there was so little that I could do. Pete was still Pete most of the time. I couldn't bring myself to hurt him, and I know I can't have killed him. I couldn't. Everything came to a head just a few hours ago, as sunset closed in. It was colder than usual, windy and sharp, but nowhere near as wild as we'd expected. We were inside, and Pete was telling me another of his war stories. He was as energetic as he ever was, his expression animated as he impersonated this old sergeant of his when his face went blank. I stood, backing away out of some terror. He looked up slowly. He spoke one more time with his own voice. Gareth, I'm sorry. I needed time and it needed you. Then he was gone, I think. Hopefully for good, for his sake. The thing that had been Pete sat there, his body rigid. I could see a vein on his temple standing and the muscles of his jaw working furiously and twitchily. Then he went blank again. That face went slack, emotionless. It spoke in this terrible monotone, scratching into my mind. I think that I may be early. That thing looked at me and twisted its face into what I think was intended to be a smile. I ran. I, I didn't know where I was going or what I was planning. I just knew that if I stayed in the room with that thing, it was going to hurt me. It was going to kill me. I heard it following, faster than Pete could have moved, but clumsily, like it didn't know what it was doing. It thumped against something loudly, growled with irritation. It actually growled. I sprinted down the stairs as fast as I dared, but I heard it arrive to the landing above me. It stopped, and I heard it inhale slowly. I didn't look back, so I was still looking downwards, and everything moved. That's how I can explain it. My vision didn't spin, everything else did. I found myself tumbling, and thanks be to God I managed to avoid cracking my skull. I looked up, dazed, to see that thing staring at me. There was still nothing on its face, but 
maybe this look of confusion. Like, I felt that it had meant to hurt me far more than it did. I didn't stop to ponder the matter with it. I slammed open the door and I booked it out into the cold. That's when I saw it. A distance away, momentarily lit by the lighthouse in the small hollow that passed for a port here, was, impossibly, a very, very small and rather ramshackle rowboat. I stood there, stunned into stopping. It seemed unlikely anyone would be fool enough to try and row that thing across the chaos of the passage tonight, less likely again that they would make it with their life intact. But it was there, sitting empty and undeniably present. My thoughts were switched back to the problem at hand when I heard that faint growl rumbling from behind me. Just a few meters away, the thing that used to be Pete. It started to walk slowly towards me. It knew I couldn't go anywhere. It was toying with me. I backed up. I, I knew I was rapidly approaching the edge of the land. The face twisted and I, I heard Pete's voice telling me to run apologizing, and then it was gone. That thing was angry now, impatient, and it started stalking towards me with this terrible purpose. And then there was a bang. The creature jerked back, keening with rage and clutching its stomach, blood seeping out. I turned in the direction of the shot, and there he was. He was tall, maybe six foot six, and a powerful build to go along with it, stocky. He couldn't have been older than 25, but the way he walked had this awful momentum. He marched calmly forward, discharging a black shotgun from beneath his elbow again and again. He was wearing this black coat, under which I could see the white mark of a priest's collar. He looked at me and pointed back to the lighthouse building. He said just one word in an accent I didn't quite recognize but felt familiar to me. Inside. He walked towards the twitching form of that thing, took something out of his pocket that was metallic and glinting. <laughs> I went inside. He came in a short time later, told me I had a few hours, then we were leaving. I haven't dared to look to what he's doing out there, the sound is enough. I don't think he'll give me long. He's coming back, I hear him opening the door, I have to hide this and I hope that I... End reading. Unfortunately, the account cuts off at this point. Evidently, either Mr. Bancroft managed to hide the account, or that priest did not care that it was being left. Gareth Bancroft and Peter Wicks have not been seen or heard from since communications dropped. That case is, from what I can see, very much cold. The priest is a similar mystery. Matches no descriptions or photos of clergy members at any church in that area of Maine and there was never any arrest made in this case, so Mr. Bancroft's murderous saviour is an unknown, too. A person who, much like the other driver in Teresa Wyatt's account, I would very much like to speak to if he is still alive. Whatever cult or game this may be, I feel confident in saying that if either or both are still alive, they would prove incredibly valuable to my investigations. It's worth considering that the priest, Wicks, or Bancroft himself may have left this document as part of this game or whatever it is. I, as ever, have my doubts on the reality of the supernatural. Also, I will certainly be keeping an eye out for the aforementioned other journal that Gareth Bancroft kept. No such journal exists in the archive in Lubeck, and if Bancroft had repeat dealings with this uh, business, 
well, I'd very much like to know all about it. Obviously, some similarities exist here between this case and the description of the hostile beings in both the Rodriguez and Wyatt cases. A discrepancy here I've noted is that Peter Wicks seemed aware, if terrified, of his impending... Uh, possession? Regardless of the countless dead ends in this one, it's at least certain that this madness stretches back a distance. And of course, the Lubeck Historical Society proved surprisingly helpful allies. I must remind myself to keep them on my good side. God knows I can be a pain to deal with. End tape. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of The Outside Tapes. As ever, if you want more content from us, trailers, teasers, behind-the-scenes content, and updates on our release schedule, you can find us on Instagram and on Tumblr, both at Outside Tapes Podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening, we appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. The Outside Tapes is a podcast created, written, and produced by Liam Brett and Evan Daly. This episode featured Evan Daly as Alfie Greaves. Thanks again for listening.